0: Good morning. Um, I am, as Ben referred to, Pastor Fudd. Um, it's not my real name. I say this a lot. Uh, my name is John, but my friends, I guess, call me Fudd, if you will. I don't know. Um, so here's the plan. Uh, normally, one of the things that we hold dear at Remedy is what we call expositional preaching, picking a book of the Bible, picking a specific text, preaching through that p- specific text, going verse by verse through that whole book. Um, but today we're not going to do that. We hold it dear, but we're not going to do it today. So let me explain why. Um, I had a guy named Ken that was going to be coming and preaching today, Ken Schmidt. He was a pastor at Manchester for a little bit of time. Uh, and now he's up at a church called Church at Charlotte. He's one of the pastors there. He was planning on coming uh, today and preaching on the doctrine of the word. Today's the first Sunday in the year, and we always want to encourage you all to say, it's the first Sunday, I'm going to read my Bible this year, or the, read my Bible in these next couple of years. And he was going to come in and preach a sermon on the doctrine of the word, the importance of understanding just how awesome the word is and what it can do for us. is all set to go. He texted me last night around 10 p.m. and said, I'm sick, I can't make it. Uh, maybe I can, I don't know. So I called Jack, our other elder, it's like, hey, you know, Jack's just coming back from passion, and like, are you are you filled up with passion? Are you you got something that's got to blow out of you right now? Because I've been going, I've been doing schoolwork this whole whole uh, last couple weeks, and that's uh, why I'm not preaching next week or the last week before. Uh, you got uh, you got anything you just need to explode out with passion? He's like, man, I'm drained. I got nothing. So uh, he, we talked a little bit. We made a plan that if Ken couldn't come that I would just kind of talk about what are some of the vision-casting things that we need to think about uh, here at Remedy. First Sunday of the year, so maybe cast a little bit, little bit of vision. What are some of the things that, uh, that we need to be thinking about at Remedy? So Ken texted me back, I don't know, about 11.30 last night and said, I'm definitely not coming. So <clears throat> hopefully we'll have Ken come back one day. Um, but So I have the assignment today of, of preaching, which I found out about last night. So um, this is more... I used the word extemporaneous and got made fun of during prayer time. An extemporaneous kind of, uh, I've got a couple notes jotted down here, but what I really wanted, extemporaneous just means kind of off the cuff talking, um, although there's notes. So what I'm going to do here is just say, remedy, we're coming up on four years, here's some of the things we've been doing, here's some of the things we want to accomplish. Um, let's look at what God has called us to do as a church, every God, every church that's um, been called by God, what is it to do? Let's examine those things, let's, let's look at ourselves, and in light of the gospel, um, maybe God will encourage us to want to wanna do that. So it's, it's a little bit of vision casting and talking about what are some of the things for 2013 as we're going into um, this next year. So uh, that's, that's the plan today. So I'm going, to, I'm going to pray because the Lord knows that that's absolutely necessary um, because this was kind of jotted down really late last night in about 15-20 minutes. So um, I've already done it once. So the good news is this. When I came out in, in first service, I thought this was just going to be... I was looking at it I was like, you know, this is just one hand scratch paper. That's got to be 15-20 minutes. So the good news is that I really still went 40-45. to 45. So I know that you're happy. You're going to get a full sermon. So um, anyway, let me pray and... Uh, Ask the Lord to come. Father, in these moments, um, we know that we're absolutely dependent upon you now. And we don't want this to just be a rehearsal of uh, some things that we can hope for and and maybe some goals that we can make, like a checklist that we want to, check off for a new year. Instead, we want to meet with God this morning. We want to look into his scriptures, come face to face with the living God, be in awe of Christ and his gospel, and be moved out of response, out of worship, to want to go and do what he's asked us because we love him so much. And so, um, as we talk about some of the things that's going on here at Remedy, and we talk about some of the things maybe that you want to do, um, more than that, Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come now, move and speak through me, let me and the rest of us in this room hear from you and, and develop a deep love for the gospel. D- develop a deeper love for Jesus and what he's done. And out of response, want to go and um, do what you've asked because we love you so dearly. Be with us now as we look into your word. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So where I want to start is probably not a... Uh, a big shock to any of us. I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at about three different texts. Um, at least that's the plan. We may look at more. Matthew chapter 28. And then I want to look at one other thing. And so, and Ephesians 4. So before we look at those first two texts, I want you to understand there's a little bit of contrast between these two texts. We've got Matthew 28, which we're going to look at. And this is the very last thing Jesus says right before he ascends. And so as he's saying it, he's looking out at the um, company of, or the context of, disciples and Christians. And he's looking at disciples and who are Christians. He's not looking at specific local congregations, because that hasn't happened yet. We know in Acts 1, is whenever they tell them to wait for the Spirit, the Spirit comes, and then they go and they start making disciples, and start ma- um, planting churches. But here in Matthew 28, the context is he's looking at a bunch of disciples, and a bunch of Christians, and he tells them something. He tells them the very last thing they need to hear. So we're going to look at that, and we're going to... Let's try to observe that little bit of contrast between Matthew 28 and just a second when we look at Ephesians 4. And when Paul's writing in Ephesians 4, basically almost saying the same thing as Matthew 28, he's looking at not a big context of Christians and disciples, although they are, but he's also couching it into a context of local communities, local churches with specific leadership. And he's telling them, Matthew 28 tells you to make disciples. And here is how we, God has designed that it would be in the context of a community. So let's set the, um, the tone or understand the big foundation from Jesus in Matthew 28. And then see how it works itself out in local congregations. So Matthew 28, it says this. Um, and I'm just going to make some, some comments and some notes as we're going through Matthew 28. Just to remind us of some of the amazing things here in this last text that he tells us. He says in verse 18... One of my favorite things is that I hear, this is random, when people say Matthew 28 and verse 18, they put the little and in there. I guess that's more of a Pentecostal thing, but I'm going to start it up because I think it's really neat instead of saying Matthew 28 18. Matthew 28 and verse 18 through 20, it says this And Jesus came to them and said, He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, we've been preaching through the book of Matthew, and we're actually going to be coming back to it um, in chapter 18 in the next few weeks. Um, but in those first 18 chapters, we've seen one of the reoccurring themes that Matthew has wanted to be sure to draw out for us is this, this issue or this context or this theme of authority. He is continually wanting to show that Jesus has ultimate authority. And so when he makes this statement, it's already been given to us that Jesus has got amazing authority to look out at to a group of people and tell them, I've got a task for you all. And because I am God, you should absolutely want to do this. He says in 2018, all authority in heaven and on earth, just to cover all proximities, has been given to me. And he looks at him and he says, go, therefore. Now, um, if you spend any time in church, you probably heard that the go here isn't like go. So get in your you know, plane and fly over to Djibouti, Africa and go really far. It just means as you're going through life. As you're going, there's, there's different places that God is going to in your ordinary life set you into a context where you have to go to a job, you have to um, care for your kids, you've got to, if you have babies, get up in the middle of the night as you're going to class, as you're going to work, as you're going to soccer practice, as you're going from here out to lunch at wherever you're going to go. It's just wherever you're going in the context of being a believer, as you're going, go there for and. So in everyday life, as you're walking through life, he wants you to do something specific. He doesn't want you to just go to soccer practice and eat. He wants you, as you're going to soccer practice, as you're going to eat, as you're going to class, as you're going through ordinary life, make disciples of all nations. That's the specific thing that he he has told all this church. Now, remember, this is a context of of, um, people, of Christians. I want you Christians to make disciples, the last thing I'm going to tell you is make disciples. We're going to get to Ephesians 4 and how that looks specifically in the context of a church. But one thing I just want us all to see, that Jesus has told every single person here, if you are in Christ, there's no perhaps I'm supposed to, maybe if I get some time one day down the road. It's everybody here is supposed to make disciples. Um, what does that mean? Uh, I think that we intuitively know it means tell people about Jesus and help them come to know Christ. And as they're a Christian, disciple them along in the process of growing as a Christian. He he wants every single person to make disciples. And this is where it gets awesome. This is where we see some just amazing textual things. He tells them to make disciples of all nations, all nations, the ethne. This is inclusive of Gentiles, not just Jews. All along, we've seen primarily throughout the entire book of Matthew A gospel that's been given and um, told to Jewish people specifically. As we've been going through Matthew, we've said this over and over. Who is Matthew primarily writing this book to? Jews. Okay, apparently it's been too long since we've gone through Matthew. A couple weeks, we're going to get back into it. I'm going to say that and you're all going to scream out, Jews! But um, the amazing thing here, I think this is pretty amazing, is um, at the very end, if you will, a bookend at the book of Matthew. A letter, or a, a gospel that is primarily written to Jewish people ends with a, a mandate of mission to going to not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. He bookends it. And if you remember when we started what was the Nativity uh, series, when Jack was preaching way back at the beginning of Matthew just a few weeks ago as we were talking about Christmas, um, we know in Matthew one twenty one it says, Jesus will come to save his people from their sins. And what do we see there in Matthew 2 at the front bookend? We see... Gentiles coming from the east, the Magi coming and, and to bearing gifts to Christ. And so we see at the very beginning, Gentiles being called to Christ, and we see here at the end, Christ telling us to go save Gentiles. So it's a a bookend of missions to the ethne, to all people, not just Jewish people, a letter, a a gospel primarily written to Jews, but a a call and a mandate with bookends at both sides of this massive tome of, of 28 chapters of Matthew, that mission is to everyone, Jews and Gentiles. And so we as believers know that what Christ is calling me to do is, as I'm going through my entire life. I am to make disciples of all the ethne. He wants me to tell them something that makes them a disciple. We're going to get to the something in a minute, because one of the primary tasks I have each week is to rehearse with us all the good news of the gospel and I'm I'm pumped about that. So it says this, and as you're making disciples of all nations, you need to be baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and then Obviously, part of making disciples is not just a a conversion. Hey, you know, ask Jesus in your heart, pray to receive Jesus, and everything's good. It's a a teaching to observe them. There's definitely a response of faith, but then a continual teaching as well that happens in the life of that person. That's making a disciple, Um, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And then this, I mean, just think about this. God himself is looking at you and saying, this task that I've given you, I am with you the whole time. If not a moment where I've called you to do this pretty amazingly huge task. And guess what? God is with you. And he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The disciples were fretting. I mean, they watched him kind of zoom up into the air. And so he tells them, I'm with you. And here comes the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 the promised Holy Spirit that he told him about in John chapters 14 and 16. So that's, that's the first thing I want us to get. I want us to get this big picture of, there's a, there's a definite thing in Matthew chapter 28 that Jesus wants Christians to do, make disciples. Now, what does that look like for us? Because... Um, what I don't think he's saying is, I want all of you Christians to make disciples. And so individually, by yourselves, just run about as single little entities, willy-nilly, and just doing mission completely by yourself as a, as a lonesome you know, ranger, by yourself doing it. I don't think that's what he's calling us to do at all, to, to run out. Now, there are instances where people certainly share the gospel one-on-one, kind of by themselves. But in the big context, he's given us... Um, Parameters, structure, infrastructure, a, a design in which the way that we can best and most effectively make these disciples. And I wanted to show you this in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay? In Ephesians chapter 4, look at this. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in being in ministry now for, uh, I don't know, 15 so years is, especially here in the South, in our context, um, most people that have kind of grown up in church, been in church, think that. Um, Yes, people should get saved. Absolutely. Pastor, um, that's why I put the money in the offering plate every week. It's your job to save them. I have got a whole bunch of friends that, that need Jesus. And so what I'm going to do is one day I might invite them and I'm going to bring them on Sunday. And when I invite them to church on Sunday, you need to tell them how to get saved so that they can become a Christian. That's what I pay you for. It's so that you can get my friends saved. Um, and what I want us to see here is that's, that's not biblical. Like you can tell them about Jesus, and they can meet Jesus and get saved. Um, As a matter of fact, that's what God wants you to do just as much as I can. Certainly, I'm not trying to downplay, there is an absolute need and great thing about inviting unchurched people to, to to church, and they meet Jesus in the corporate Sunday context. I pray for that every Sunday. I want you to bring your unchurched people here and that they meet Jesus. However, that's not exclusively the only way that God wants you to make disciples. He also wants you to know, because you have the Spirit in you, that you have the ability in your day, in your week, whatever you're doing, to tell them about Jesus yourself, tell them about the Gospel, and that they can meet Jesus there. I mean, my personal goal at Remedy is that more people would get saved the other six days than this particular one day. I would love it if... You know, just, just pick a number. If, if 100 people get saved, 51 get saved Monday through Saturday, and 49 get saved on Sunday. That, that means you're doing the leading people to Jesus. You're not just totally dependent upon me because of this particular text. We know, um, as Jesus looks at Christians in broad, general sense, you're supposed to make disciples. And so let me show you what I think is one of the, the, the structures in which he set it up to be. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, start it right there at verse 11. And Paul is going to say, he's going to list some leadership. Um, The APEPT, the apostles, pastors, evangelists, prophets, and teachers. Um, He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. This is basically the leadership of the church. He gave the leadership of the church to do what? To do all the evangelism and leading people to Jesus? Look what he says. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, the leadership of the church to equip the saints that's every person that's a believer inside of a church to do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is, back to Matthew 28, making disciples. Which means the leadership of the church, one of the primary functions of the leadership of the church is to equip the saints to do, work, to do the work of ministry. So if you like to write things down, the APEP does to, is supposed to do the equip. The, the leadership is supposed to equip you to do the work of ministry. The work of ministry is Matthew 28. Making disciples. Now that doesn't mean that I only equip. I'm like, no, I can't lead you to Jesus. Get away. That's y'all's job. It's like if someone needs to meet Jesus, certainly I'm excited as you as you are to tell them. But one of my primary things is one of the primary things that leadership elders of churches are to do is to equip you as you're going through life to do the work that Matthew 28 has told you to do. And we can see here he says. He's equipped them to do the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So with Matthew 28 being given to a Christian disciple, kind of Christian's context, Ephesians 4 narrows it in and says, you're supposed to make disciples, and you need to do it in the context of a community. Doing life with a group of people, a particular church. You're not running out singly, kind of doing willy-nilly things by yourself. Instead, God has ordained that local churches be set up communities bodies are here doing life one another and as they're doing ordinary life together they're living out their ordinary lives with gospel intentionality that they are inviting people into this this community and they're proclaiming to them a message that will make them a disciple now the message that's what i'm excited to tell you about here and every week i rehearse it with you and we we go over it and i want i want to do that again um Because it's absolutely necessary, and we see, and I'm going to show you just a second, that the gospel is a message that doesn't just um, get told to unbelievers so that they can meet Jesus. Instead, it's also a message that Christians need to hear as often as possible to know who they are in Christ. I would argue that if you look at an unbeliever and you say, and I ask the question, how much do they need to hear the gospel? You would, I mean, every single one of us would say, well, terribly bad. (laughs) Terribly, terribly bad. If they don't hear the message, how are they going to get saved? So we would all look at that and say, tremendously. I mean, they absolutely need to hear it without question. I would argue that the Christian has just as much need to hear the gospel as an unbeliever does. An unbeliever needs to hear it to get saved. A Christian needs to hear it to remind themselves constantly who they are in Christ, what he's declared of them, and that they are no longer under condemnation. There's no works needed to be in Christ. But to, you don't have to strive towards trying to do works to be saved. All of it's been accomplished for you right now by Christ. And you are walking now in absolute righteousness that's been imputed into you because of Christ. So let me, let me share with you this message that we're supposed to, that we're supposed to proclaim. We know, um, as we just went over in Matthew 28, that we have a message that we are supposed to proclaim to people that makes disciples. We know from Ephesians 4 that we're supposed to do what's called the work of the ministry, which is making disciples. And so the way we make disciples and the way we do the work of the ministry means we have something we need to say to people. And so I want to tell you what it is that message we have. Right here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is going to tell us the exact words of of the gospel. What it is that we need to... What's this message that we have to tell people? And it's in First Corinthians 15. He says this. Now, um, Paul is going to make my case for me in this very first sentence about how believers need to hear the gospel with just as much necessity as an unbeliever. He says, now I would remind, this means they've heard something and they're about to hear it again. I want to make known to you, I want to declare to you something that you've already heard and that you've already believed. He says, I would remind you, brothers, this brothers is... um, A word that Paul uses and it kind of takes some meaning in that first century Greek. That means it's not just like, hey friends, it means literally people who are in Christ. So this is brothers and sisters who are in Christ. I would remind you, people who are in Christ of the gospel. So there it is right there. We can immediately ask, wait a second. Why is Paul telling Christians the gospel? Don't they know that? Isn't that the part of the sermon? Whenever he starts saying the gospel, that the that the believers kind of click their pen and they say, "All right, I'm going to go in prayer now for the unbelievers because I know this message. I don't need to hear this again." Isn't that the part where that's supposed to happen? Paul absolutely doesn't seem to believe that. He thinks that whenever the gospel is being said in a sermon or in any context, in a writing, in, in any manner, it is not just a message for unbelievers, but it's a message for people who already have put their faith in Christ as well. They need to hear this good news. And this is what he says. I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preach to you. That's just proclaim. I preach to you or proclaim. And then notice this little progression of which people uh, receive the gospel. Look at this. By which you received, in which you stand. So there's a receiving of the gospel that happens. There's there's an initial belief that's put in the good news of Christ. And after that, there's also a continued standing, a continued belief in that good news. It's not just a one-time thing and I'm done and I can go kind of fly by the seat of my pants and do whatever I want. After we put our faith in the gospel, he says we receive it, we also continually stand in it. And when we're doing that, whenever we're justified and we're being sanctified, Paul calls that being saved by which you receive, by which you are stand, by which you are now being saved. Sometimes we don't think about that. Salvation, and there's other language in the Bible and in the book of Hebrews that says Christians are being saved. We are saved, and we're also being saved. And this is Paul just kind of taking the concepts of justification, that you've already been declared right before God, and sanctification, that you're growing in your likeness of Christ, which is not salvific, it's not earning, it's based on the fact that you've already got it. He's taking those two things and he's saying, that is being saved. So whenever you receive You stand, you're also being saved. And look at this, if we should never ever erase or run from or get nervous about the verses in Scripture that um, encourage Christians that they must continue to persevere in the faith in order to be saved. This is biblical language. We don't run from it just because we might be of uh, the belief of the doctrines of grace. Oh, what, what? You can't lose your salvation. I agree, you can't. But there are verses, clear verses that say, You receive, you stand, and you are being saved if you hold fast to the word, which is the gospel that I preach to you. There's an absolute continuing and enduring and persevering that is necessary in the life of a believer in order to be saved. We've already talked about that when we unpacked Philippians. We know Philippians 2, 12, and 13 tells us that we work our salvation with fear and trembling and as we work we know that it was god all the while working and bringing that about so it doesn't erase our need to work but certainly just to use the clear language of the bible we must persevere we must continue to persevere and endure in the faith i don't think we can lose our salvation i think if we walk away we never we never were saved but there's a clear gospel message here that he reminds them of these are the things that happen. Now, here's where it gets interesting because he says, we know all throughout the scriptures, belief, this Greek word pistos, belief or faith is what saves. Notice here that there's a kind of faith that Paul's going to allude to that doesn't save. There's a kind that does and there's a kind that doesn't. Look what he says here. In which you believed and you are being saved that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So there's a a pistos or a, a a belief or a faith that saves the right belief and understanding that you receive, you stand, and that you're being saved if you endure to the end. And the, the enduring to the end and the standing simply just means, I think, um, that you never ever go away from the mindset that Christ has accomplished it all for me already. All I do is return to to the cross and return to a deeper belief in what Christ has already done and that He has completely already declared me righteous. Philippians three sixteen. Let us walk in what we've already attained, which is perfect right standing with God. Romans eight one, there is therefore now no condemnation ever for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the standing is a renewed belief and understanding in the gospel. But we must endure. If we don't do that, if we move off the grace track and run over to the law track and think that in order to have a right staying with God, I've got to perform and do and, and do all these things. It's not all by grace. It's also by my works. Then we've moved off the, the, tr- the grace track and then we have what he calls here believed in vain. James 2 calls it devil faith, non-salvific faith, faith that does not save. So we all want to strive to endure for faith that saves. Now, that's... That's part of here the gospel that he tells them. So, what is that message? He says, I preach this to you. You put your faith in it. You're standing in it and you're received. What is that message? Paul, no, notice here what Paul does not do. Paul does not immediately resort to personal experience. Remember that message I preached to you? It's when I was walking down the Damascus Road. I was killing a bunch of Christians. I was walking down the D- Damascus Road. A big bright light came and blinded me. I don't know what's going on. I got to go find people. He doesn't tell us his personal testimony. What does he do? he immediately goes over to Jesus and talks about Jesus's life, Jesus's death, and Jesus's resurrection. That are the primary, those things are the primary tenets of the gospel. I'm not discounting personal experience, but Paul doesn't go to that. Paul goes to the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And so this message we have that makes disciples is the message of Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection for us, not just our personal experience. He doesn't say, I decided one day just to stand up for Jesus. I decided one day that I just was broken and needed to be put back together. I mean, these are some of the the weird language that we hear sometimes in Christianity and evangelicalism being taught. But Paul says, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. And here it is. Point blank gospel in verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's already used that received language. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins. The gospel begins with christ and what he did he died for our sins also in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried he was literally dead he wasn't faking dead he didn't look dead he didn't swoon on the cross he was dead and then after that that he was raised on the third day showing that he defeated satan's sin and death because of the resurrection he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures that's our gospel message that we have this is the As Romans 1 16 says, the powerful message that we have that when that that particular um, words are said in a proclamation towards the unbeliever, the Holy Spirit comes behind that and penetrates down through the heart of stone of an unbeliever and changes them and they respond with repentance and faith. That's our great message. You want to know how to make disciples, what do I say? You need to tell them the gospel, the good news, the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. I'm not discounting personal testimony. You can talk about your personal testimony. You should. Those things can be quite encouraging. But just notice that's not what Paul does. Maybe he does later. Now, I want to give you um, some more categories to think about the gospel. And this is from uh, a book that some of the elder candidates were reading. Uh, There's this book called The Explicit Gospel by Matt Chandler. And he breaks that book up into two kind of sections. One, he calls the gospel on the ground, and one, he calls the gospel in the air. Um, what we've seen right here in the, in the scriptures is what Chandler calls the gospel on the ground, and that is God, man, Christ, response. And this, there's four categories kind of make up what is the good news. God. God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous. Everything that he does is always good. Everything that he does is true. Everything he says is true. Everything about God is perfect, holy, righteous, just. And then the next step in the gospel presentation, if you will, he, he says, is man. If there was ever more contrast, there's one. <laughs> there's God who's perfect, holy, righteous, and just. There's man who is a sinner, who willfully chooses to sin, who willfully chooses to rebel against God. And because of that sin, has willfully chosen to be out of relationship with God and be separated. So there's God, there's man, and we can see here, there's God and man and they're separated. This is a... A, a terrible thing that's happened. And there's only, one, there's only one thing that can happen that can reconcile them or bring them back together. There's only one thing that can happen. God, man, Christ. Man and God are separated. Enter Christ, who took all the penalty and all the punishment that man should have had. Christ came and died our death forth for us. And then the bridge that was separating us has now been rebuilt by Jesus. And that happens. the The bridge is rebuilt, if you will, ...through response, God, man, Christ, response... ...and so this response means whenever we see what Christ has done... ...we see that we're separated from God... ...we know that we're a sinner, we admit that we're a sinner... ...we respond specifically biblically through faith and repentance... We put our faith in Jesus and what he did, and we repent of our sins. And as Martin Luther says, all of our life is, is of repentance, not in a way that's resaving us, but in a way that's acknowledging who we are before God and a continued trust in what Christ has already said of us is that we are now in perfect right standing with him. God, man, Christ, response. And that's generally, if you've been in church at any time, this is, this is the message of the gospel that I've heard, I mean, from birth, This is the one I got saved under at, at VBS at seven, you know, whenever they were telling us about Jesus and I ate the cookies off my finger. You know, all of us had that thing. Um, that was the message of the gospel that we've heard. And Chandler says that is the message you need to proclaim to people. But there's also a, a, a second way, if you will, to proclaim the gospel. And it's not God, man, Christ's response. Instead, it kind of takes that, um, that systematic way of delivering the gospel and it lifts it up a little bit and it looks at the scriptures and it does it in more of a biblical theology, a biblical way of, of telling people the gospel. It looks at the story of the Bible and sees that this isn't just a bunch of individual weird stories about David and Samson and Abraham and Paul. Instead, all those things are really one big story, one huge arc of narrative, the story of God, a big meta-narrative of Scripture. And so another way to tell the gospel is to look at the biblical story and say, there's a big story that's going on here. Now, the gospel, as Chandler calls it, the ground starts with man. It starts with Genesis 3, and it starts with, with us as sin. The other one, the gospel in the air, starts with the relationship that we had with God in the garden before the fall. So it goes... It doesn't just say, you're a sinner. It actually starts back in Genesis 1 and it says, look at this relationship you had with God before things got broken. And so the the four words in the gospel in the air are creation, fall, redemption. Sometimes people use the word reconciliation, consummation. So there was a day when God created everything. He created man and female and, and everything and he put them in the garden and they experienced perfect relationship with God. Shalom, peace with God. They, as it says in Genesis 3, walked with God. They knew him. There was, there was no break, no aberration, nothing that kept man and God out of relationship. They were in perfect shalom with one another. And then it goes to fall. But it starts with creation. Perfect shalom. This is, this is the, the, the big story, meta-narrative of the scriptures. Another way to say the gospel. Then it moves to Fall. So we experience perfect relationship, and then fall happened. And as the fall happened, it didn't just happen individually to man, like the the other one says, but instead, this this is a fall that happened and affects all of creation. We know that Romans 8 says that the creation groans inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption. So it's not just man that's waiting to be redeemed, but instead, the whole meta-narrative, the whole arc of the Bible is saying that all of creation is awaiting a re- reconciliation or redemption unto God. Now, salvifically, it's only going to happen to man. But all of creation is going to one day be redeemed for the glory of God. So we start with this perfect shalom. And then there's a fall where man willingly chooses to go. And all throughout the Old Testament, the stories of the Old Testament are continual pushing of the narrative. A continual arc of the meta-narrative saying, there's a Messiah, there's a Reconciler, there's a Redeemer coming, there's somebody that's going to return us back to that Shalom, there's somebody we willfully chose, but there's somebody that's going to come, and He's going to make all these things, not just man's Relationship with God, but all of creation is going to be restored. All of beauty is going to be um, restored. All of the things that are going on in this entire world. The big meta narrative of Scripture is that we will be one day reconciled back to ha- God and have perfect shalom with Him. Creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, enter Christ who dies for us on the cross, but in that saves all of creation. It is the big story. And then it says, lastly, consummation. This is the, one of the best things, I think about this way to say the gospel, is we're looking forward to the day where we are finally with Christ forever. There's a consummation. We started in a garden. We started in a garden and had perfect peace and shalom with God. And we end in a city having perfect peace and shalom with God. We start in a garden where we're eating some of the fruit of the tree and enjoying a a dinner, a meal, and, and being with God in perfect relationship. We end with a massive feast where we eat the best foods. We drink wine. We can say that in church. Drink wine with our Savior. There's a massive meal and consummation and final time where we will live forever with Jesus, giving him glory. That is the big story of the gospel. So you say, well, well that's kind of all inclusive. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of words you just said. Which one do I do? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm the short version guy. Could you just cliff note that for me? Maybe I can watch the movie, read the cliff notes, and just maybe get a B on the test. I'm not really interested in reading the whole book. Um, which one do I say? Why would you not say both? Why would you not say both? This is the story of the gospel. And it depends on the person, the time, the period you have. Maybe you need to to do the gospel on the ground, the God, man, Christ response. But if you have time and you have someone that's a thinker and maybe artistic and maybe understands the meta narrative and loves beauty and they they see that it's not just them that's broken, but everything's broken, then we tell them the gospel in the air that there's a great story that's been happening of all the time and we are one day going to be finally redeemed fully and with Christ forever. So as we're um, looking at Matthew 28 that we're supposed to make disciples and it happens in the context of a community. I think the sharpening, the, the best place to be telling people the gospel is in this community. You're, you're not going to grow in your understanding of the gospel by yourself. You need to be um, constantly letting yourself be equipped to go do the work of ministry. There's, there's a whole lot of people in this particular county city that need to meet Jesus and there's no way that the leadership of this church can do it. It's the leadership of the church equipping you where we all go fulfill the great commission, Matthew 28, to make disciples. And the message we have is this amazing message that Christ has come and brought us into right response with him because of his death, burial and resurrection based on our faith and repentance that we are now restored to him perfectly and then we live in the already not yet where we are co-heirs with christ but it's coming at a much more um better way we have food and we have drink here and we have shadows of things that are going to be even better even even more bright there with christ we have relationships here but they're going to be even better there everything here is just a shadow or a a, a picture of the great um, relationship that we'll have with each other and as we give glory to christ in the final age so what does that mean then? Let, let's bring that down to, to Remedy Church here in 2013. This is what I think it means. I think that now, um, hopefully, we're all going to say, yes, FUD, I agree that we are supposed to make disciples of all nations. That includes believers and unbelievers. We're supposed to make disciples, preach the gospel to people that are Christians to help them grow in their walk. And we're supposed to make disciples of unbelievers to help them come to know Christ and teaching them to observe everything that Christ has commanded. Um, And the way that that just happens here at Remedy is we have the Sunday morning and we have the rest of the week. We have the Sunday morning worship gathering where we want to make disciples of believers and unbelievers. I want people that are in the faith to hear the gospel, to grow in their understanding of the gospel and be sent out to go make disciples. And I want people that are not believers to come on Sundays, hear the gospel, that the messages that we have aren't just for Christians, but they're for non-Christians as well. And that they come to know Christ in the Sunday morning gathering, as well as, as well as we make disciples out in the other six days of the week. That you are telling Christians that you're meeting with weekly who they are in Christ. You're having um, times where you're getting together, you're praying for one another, you're reminding each other who they are in Christ, that the gospel's so good that you're not under condemnation anymore and you're growing each other in the faith. But you're also, as a community, doing what Ephesians 4 says, reaching out to the community of lost people and telling them to come into the community. Belong before you believe or believe before you belong. Either one, meet Jesus in this community. We want you to know who Christ is. And I think we need to do both. And so as I'm looking at Remedy, I want to offer out some places I think that we can improve. Offer out some places I think we can improve. I'm going to start with myself. Um, Tim Keller, he's just a pastor up in New York, says something along these lines. He says... um, the church, the people that, that are in your church will bring unbelievers to the Sunday morning service if they believe that the pastor is actually going to speak to them. If they believe that the pastor is only going to talk to Christians, they won't believe, bring unbelievers. If they believe that the pastor is going to speak to un- believers and, and unbelievers, then they'll bring their lost friends. And As I look week to week, kind of survey where we are, a lot of familiar faces, not too many unfamiliar faces, I think that this is one of the things I need to grow at. I need to, obviously, do a better job at you feeling confident that if you bring unbelieving friends here, that I'm gonna speak to them. And so that's one of the places I think that we need to grow at Remedy. I I want you to bring people that don't know Jesus here on Sunday for them to hear the gospel. I don't want that to just be the way they hear the gospel. I want you to tell them about Jesus as well. But I want you to have confidence that if you bring them, they're gonna hear Words for me that are directed towards them, not just the Christians in the room. So that's one place I think we need to grow, or I need to grow. So I need to do that so confidence builds within you that that's going to happen for them. Now, let me throw the ball back over on y'all. Um, I think a place that, that you can grow is this. Week to week, um, I think that you can be far more involved in the community of believers that Remedy has. This is what I mean. Um, I, I've read a book here recently called Total Church by uh, Steve Timmis. and he says something along these lines: um, You've got a lot of things going on during your day, you, during your week. You've got tennis or golf or whatever leisure activity you have, sports, Xbox, and you've also got, <laughs> you've also got. Uh, School, you've got work, you've got your spouse, you've got your kids, you've got the whatever. And then I say, You need to be in community. And you just think, Well, I got community too. So I've got a big checklist of things I got to make sure I'm doing throughout the week. And he says, I want to um, exhort you or encourage you or help you think differently about community as another thing of the week. Instead, take that, erase that, and let's do it this way. Let's take community and let's stick it right there in the center of the hub. And then say, from my community, with my believers that the Lord has ordained that I would be in, in this particular church, from that, that's going to be the centerpiece where I'm going to go out and be uh, a person that works a job. Go out and love my spouse. That's going to go out and do my leisure activity. So it's, it's not just another thing. Instead, it's the central thing. So where I'm going to go eat, and if you're human, you probably eat every day. You don't say, well, i got to eat and i got to do community. You say, I, this is the center. Community is the center. Hey, I'm going to go eat. I'm assuming you do as well. Let's go eat together. And as we go eat together, we can do community together. And if you know Christ, I want to remind you who he is. Um, Or if you don't, I want to tell you. It's ordinary life every day lived out with gospel intentionality. I want my, my life to be revolving around the gospel community that I'm in, the gospel word that I believe. And all the things that happen in life revolve around that. It's, it's a mindset shift, no doubt, that we all have to make. Community, in this gospel word, and this gospel community that I'm in, must shape who I am, and I make all the decisions based on that. Oh, my community group, somebody in my community group plays... Um, softball and has a softball go- game tonight. We need to go and we need to be there in that community and watch them strike out or watch them hit their home run and be in that community. And afterwards, we'll go out to eat and we'll talk about Jesus and we'll talk about how fun it was to watch you whiff and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's, um, it's an it's a go- ordinary life lived out with gospel intentionality. I think that's what you can improve at. I think that you, as Remedy, can stop making community another checklist and make it the central hub of your life, and let that inform the way you do everything else. Me too. But that's, that's us. That's you. And so, that was me, that was you, and now I want to talk about us. Now I want to talk about us. Um, I think that all of us can, when we're not in this room, the other 166 hours per week, whatever it is, I don't know, four, three, 163, whatever, um, that we can all think far more intentionally about Unbelievers in our life. There are people, I mean, there's 70 something thousand people in Rock Hill. If we include Fort Mill, we're probably into the hundred and something thousand. Um, if we're just honest, half of them know Jesus, probably less. We're surrounded by probably 60,000 people that don't know Jesus and churches that aren't reaching them. We need people that are attending these churches to start being far more intentional about getting around the unbelievers, not thinking that they're going to catch the sinnies if they hang around with them, but being like Jesus, a missionary to a group of people, living in community with them, inviting them into our community and saying, we're going to love you whether you meet Jesus or not, but we want to tell you a great message, which is something that will save you forever forever. Listen to this gospel message I have, and you can launch into gospel on the ground or gospel in the air, whichever one you want, and it takes a little bit of time. It takes months or so. It takes a lot of prayer. But I think all of us, me and you, can be far more intentional about making sure that we have unbelievers around us that are hearing the gospel come from our lips. The gospel saves when it's proclaimed. It's not just I hope they get around us and it kind of oozes out of me into them and they just guess it. The gospel is always meant to be proclaimed. And I think you and I can both improve in that. And so if you say something like to yourself, I can't name one unbeliever that I weekly hang out with. That's my point. I think we all can do a whole lot better. So me, I want to preach in such a way that, that if you have people that don't know Jesus, you'll bring them. You, I think that you can do a whole lot better at making the community that you have your central hub and not just another part of your checklist. And all of us can do a better job at having unbelievers um, meet Jesus with us on a a weekly basis. So this is what, um, just to kind of look into 2013, this is what I think it means at Remedy. Um, I think most of you know that we hired... Ben, the guy that's worshiping, uh, worshiping, he's worshiping, but he's also leading worship, um, that we hired him full-time. So he and I are both um, full-time here at Remedy. And so as we began January last year, Ben, Tim, uh, the guy over community groups, Jack, the other elder, and myself, the four of us from January of 2012, um, basically uh, built out, read, discussed, did a ton of work on not Sunday morning, but the other six days. We looked at the other six days and asked questions like, what's a disciple? What does disciple making look like? How do we have people that are becoming disciples that make disciples? And we looked at our entire discipleship plan that we have. And all of 2012, as far as a lot of the the work outside of doing Sunday morning, was, was all pushed towards the other six days, discipleship. We wanted to make sure we had infrastructures, community groups, gospel-centered discipleship groups. That's why we started those in August, that we had a huge infrastructure where we as a church were doing Ephesians 4, equipping the saints to do the work of ministry so that you were becoming stronger disciples, but you were also disciples that were going to go make disciples. That's all of 2012. That's what we did. Um, We concentrated on the other six days, not the Sunday morning. Now, We believe in the Sunday morning. We love it. We still did it every week. We were here and we we preached our guts out when we could. We worshiped with everything we had, blah, blah, blah. But we we pointed all of our mindset towards discipleship the other six days. Looking into 2013, what we're going to do is we're also going to include the seventh day. In 2013, what we want to do at Remedy is think about how we're making disciples for all seven days. So we're doing things like we've hired um, a children's worker that's going to predominantly work now on Sunday morning, um, making disciples of our children. Carrie Blankenship, Jack's wife, she's going to be doing not just our pre-K and under, but she's also going to be making discipleship plans all the way up into the sixth grade where parents are being more and more equipped to make disciples of their own children and show them the glories of Christ. We're also um, wanting to, one of the goals I have and prayers I have for 2013 is that we would have many people start meeting Jesus in our services. Not to the exclusion of meeting Jesus the other six six days, but I have a deep longing and burden for people to start meeting Jesus here. Not because it's going to somehow like make me feel better as a preacher, and make me, you know, oh, just if that would happen, I would feel so good about myself. That's not at all. I just want, like Paul does, I weep to see people meet Jesus, and I want them to not be on a pathway towards hell. It breaks my heart that their eternity is separation from God, and I want them to meet Jesus. So I want to open it up this next 2013. As we plan, we're going to start being really intentional about Not just the other six, which we've done, but also the seventh day where we're going to think about how we can make disciples of believers and unbelievers all throughout the week. Now, I say all that to say this, to let you know if you come to Remedy what we do, but also this. um, This isn't like trying to brag about us at Remedy. Look look what we do, we plan. Um, But instead to say, anybody that works a job should plan. Like they should reassess, look at what they're doing, see if things can get better. It's just smart. Your life is no different. You should be doing that individually, not just for the company you work for. What what did you accomplish over 2012? What plans did you make in January of 2012 to accomplish for Christ? What were the things that you said I need to do? And and did you do them? Every one of us needs to be thinking in those ways. What are the things that... Those things aren't going to make God love me more. Those things are out of a response of what he's already said of me, that I'm never out of relationship with him. I am 100% righteous right now as I will be then. As Chandler says, Jesus is just in love with me right now at age 38 as he will be at 98. He doesn't love me more then where I'm more like him. He loves me just as much right now. So out of that truth, what do I want to do for him? Out of response and love, what do I want to do for him? So look at your next year, 2013. What do you want to do? Could you make a plan? Would you make a plan? Do you want to pray more? Is 2013 the year that you're going to pray? You you pray at meals. You pray when a a crisis happens, but you don't ever pray. Maybe the Lord's saying, this is the year you need to really press in and start praying. Perhaps it's reading. You need to read the scriptures. You really don't read the scriptures. We have, I don't know, like eight Bible reading plans over there. Pick one. Take one. They're on the info table. Maybe this is the year you want to read the Bible or... You know, God's not mad if you don't do it in a year. He's certainly perfectly fine with you if you do it in the next two or three. Maybe you can take this plan and read the Bible in the next two years. Maybe you can take plan and read the Bible in the next three years. What God wants is you to read the word, to be in there, to meet and commune and have intimacy with him. So maybe that's what 2013 is for you, is a time where you're going to be in the scriptures for sure. Maybe for you dads, um, this is a time where you're really going to be far more intentional with your children you're going to make sure you have family worship at least once a week. You're going to teach them the gospel and the scriptures. For husbands, maybe uh, really taking serious the, the exhortation of Ephesians 5, to wash your wife in the water of the word. Be in the scriptures and in prayer with her this, this year. You haven't done that before and you know you need to. There's no condemnation if you don't fulfill it perfectly. It's wise and Christ-honoring, though, to say, what does God want for me to do this year? And maybe it's for you who are a Sunday morning-only attender, and you're not in that context of community where we clearly see that's where God wants us to be in to make disciples. Maybe it's, I'm not going to be a Sunday-only attending anymore I'm going to, yes, come Sunday, but I'm going to enter myself into, take the, the step of faith or take the the, the nervous step into the a community at Remedy and be a part of making disciples in the context of these 12, 15 people, this community group and being a part of it day to day, letting these people be my hub and we are going to go make disciples together. Maybe you just realize that it's necessary for you to do that now. I, I don't know, but I, I exhort you, I, I encourage you to make sure that you are doing that. Here's the thing. Um, This is the last illustration I want to say. Um, And I hesitated. I was kind of nervous about using this illustration because it's about money. And every time I talk about money, I always feel like y'all are like... This is me importing this feeling upon you that I know you probably don't have. Every time a pastor talks about money, I always feel like the congregation's like, oh, great, money again. That's all they ever talk about is money. Money, money, money. And I I hate that, so I don't even like to use money illustrations. But this is a money illustration where you did awesome, and I want you to know about it. So I'm going to tell you this, and this is just an illustration of how it seems, even over this short four years, the people of Remedy really want to do what Christ wants. And it doesn't just revolve around money. It revolves around all the things I see you doing, like gospel-centered discipleship, et cetera. But just a couple of weeks ago, in an, an, annou- an announcement I made as kind of passing comment really fast. I said, just so y'all know, um, the fourth quarter, and that doesn't mean like a football term, that just means like the last three months of the year, um, although the Gamecocks did destroy their, anyway. So um, <laughs> fourth quarter, I said, uh, just so y'all know that so far, the way the fourth quarter of the year is setting up, this will be the lowest giving year of Remed- the lowest giving quarter of remedies year. Two thousand twelve we had great one, two, three was big, quarter four is gonna be the lowest. And that's interesting because generally our pattern has been that it it's it's always higher, you know, at the end of the year. That's all I said. It said something like that. That's all. So we saw that December, we just got the edition done, the last month of December, specifically those last two weeks, there was so much money given that it took quarter four, and it wasn't the lowest. In fact, it was just under three. Like three was here, and it was just under three, and then one and two were the lowest, which means a small little thing, a small little prodding or a word of encouragement or, hey, just so you know from from your pastor, then people, at Remedy at least, and I try to say, this is a spirit thing. This isn't like, come on, get in line. I I, I always want it to be Based on what Christ has done in the gospel, I want to do something for Christ out of love and worship for him. You stepped up. Now, I know that it wasn't you, it was the Holy Spirit inside of you for the gospel of Christ, for the glory of Christ. But I take that as an example to say, the pattern of remedy is, and maybe this is my fault, the more I encourage or exhort or challenge something, you step up. It just seems to be the pattern. So I want to challenge you along with myself. I want to set the bar high here because it seems to be the pattern that you love Christ at such a high level that you step up to the occasion. And by the power of the Spirit, because of the gospel of Christ, for the glory of Christ, you really start doing some amazing things. So here's what I want. I want for every person in this particular service, we know in Matthew 28, go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching. What I want is that every person in this particular room one day... Over this entire 365 years, we'll get into this baptismal pool that's always here when it's not here today. We'll get into this baptismal pool with me sometime over this next 365 days and that you and I will baptize someone that you have led to Jesus. I think that you can do that. I know that every single one of you has the ability over the course of a year to proclaim the gospel to someone. The results are up to the Lord, but perhaps he would save them. And you and I would see them be baptized right here in the context of this community. And we would, as a church, put them in a community and teach them to observe all that he's commanded. I think that you can do that. I want to challenge you and exhort you and encourage you. Let's do that this year. That would be awesome. It gets me pumped up just thinking about it. Let's do it. We've got to keep barring the baptism we'll pull from the other church. We've got some more baptisms. God saved more people. Let's do it. So I'm excited and I know that you can do this because remedy, if there's anything, you love Christ and I see it and I don't think I challenge you enough. Let's have that many people meet Jesus today. And it's not for the name and fame of remedy at all. If they get baptized and they grow and then they go to another church and they make disciples in that church, praise God, that's fine with me. I want to see people meet Christ and I know you do too.